This is true news, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. I'm Rick Wiles. Today is Tuesday, February 13, 2024. U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer and House Committee on the Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan today released the transcript from the committee's transcribed interview with Biden Family Business Associate Rob Walker. Mr. Walker gave testimony under oath about the Biden family's dealings with CEFC, a communist Chinese government-linked energy firm. He also testified about the Biden's business dealings in Romania. Let's start with this headline published by the New York Post. Biden met with Chinese, excuse me, Biden met with chairman of Chinese energy firm Hunter did business with in 2017, ex-associate testifies. Doc, yes. it's now, they really are starting to zero in on Joe Biden. They now have testimony under oath from a Biden family business partner that Joe Biden himself, not Hunter, Joe Biden yes. met with the chairman of the Chinese energy firm. Despite uh, President Biden and all of his associates saying, I had nothing to do with any of Hunter's business. But even that story has changed over the past couple of years. It, it went from absolutely nothing to, well, occasionally I was there, you know. We talked about the weather. Sun. Yes. Uh, but now it's moving even closer, as Rick said. The target is getting closer to the president. Uh, this is from the Post. It says President Biden met with the chairman of the Chinese energy firm that Hunter Biden sought to create a joint venture with. Mating at the Four Seasons in Washington, D.C. in 2017, and that's coming from former business partner of the First Son, uh, Rob Walker, former business associate of Hunter Biden, testifying to the House Oversight and Judiciary Committee earlier this month as part of the House impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Now, Mr. Walker, during his closed-door transcribed interview, told congressional investigators that Joe Biden attended a meeting where he, Hunter Biden, their other business partners, and CEFC Chairman Ye Jiangming were having lunch. Now, Walker said, I don't remember the exact time, but I remember being in Washington, D.C., and the former vice president stopped by. We were having lunch, Walker testified, according to the transcript of his interview reviewed by Fox. Walker said he did not know the exact date, but said it was 20, probably 17 at some point. I can say it was for certain he was out of office. Walker said, referring to Joe Biden being out of the Obama administration at the time of the lunch, Walker said the lunch talk took place at the Four Seasons in a restaurant in a private room. I'm certain, and I'm certain, Yay was there, Walker said, knowing that we're, there were also other CEFC business partners. Ye Jinming at the time was the chairman of the Chinese energy uh, company in question. Walker said the purpose of the meeting was to discuss ways we, we could work together work together with a Chinese communist firm. That's right. And so uh, those dealings began with Hunter Biden while Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. So they, the, the Republicans are now establishing a clear line of activity that can be used to impeach Joe Biden for um, selling influence as vice president of the United States. That he was he was using the office of vice president to enrich his family, 
they now have sworn evidence from Biden, not Biden critics, Biden family business partners. People who were on the payroll. <laughs> yes. Maybe not in terms of a salary, but right. doing business with yes. the Bidens in these dealings. Now, the, the other one in the testimony that's underway right now, as we're talking, is Mr. Bobolinsky. Yes. That's taking place right now. And the New York Post reporting uh, Bobolinsky's blistering impeachment testimony. The Biden family business was Joe Biden, period. So as a former Biden family business partner scorched uh, President Biden in an explosive opening statement at a House impeachment inquiry deposition Tuesday. This is today saying that the commander in chief is corrupt and that his testimony will prove it. Tony Bobolinsky, the former U.S. Navy officer who worked alongside Hunter Biden and Joe and, and James Biden on the venture with CEFC China Energy. Yes. He said, quote, the Biden family business was Joe Biden, period. Bobolinsky alleges that he met Joe Biden twice in May 2017 to discuss the venture shortly after Biden left the office as vice president. Well, that lines up with what Rob Walker said. Yes. A different former Biden family associate, Rob Walker, testified that the Biden family business relationship with the Chinese firm began in 2015 when Joe Biden was still vice president. And that Joe Biden himself attended a meeting at the Four Seasons Hotel in or around March 2017. So, Doc, what we didn't see in the first article was that the the Biden family dealings with the Chinese energy firm had had started two years earlier. When Joe Biden was still vice president. Yes. There's the criminal activity. But, of course, they have to prove that... Joe Biden knew and participated in those business dealings while he was vice president. Well, they just, those- that, that's what they're doing right now. That testimony proves it. Bob Alinsky is saying, or, or excuse me, Walker said, according to this report, that the business dealing began in 2015. The business dealing between the Bidens yes. and the Chinese energy firm. It began in 2015. Bob Alinsky is saying that he met Biden twice in 2017. Walker is saying he met Biden, that Biden stopped by a meeting with um, Walker and Yi, the chairman of the Chinese firm, in the spring of 2017. So there's a timeline. The Biden started working with the Chinese company in 2015. Biden was still the vice president. 2017, he's stopping by the Four Seasons to check on how things are going. So there's a timeline now. Um, Doc, if he if he if he had a business meeting with a Chinese official on the last day he was vice president, he's still guilty. You're still the vice president. You're still trading your inf- you're still trading your position. You're trading influence. You know, money. Uh, assets in return for access to government officials to get things done. So the noose is closing on Joe Biden. But I do not believe that 
he will be impeached. No, I don't believe so either. No. There, there's not enough votes in the House to, I, I'm to do gonna, it. I'm going to walk you through this. I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. Now, I will say this. I do not believe Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee in 2024. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Not after everything that's gone on in the past week. No, it's just not going to happen. The stage is being set for the removal of Joe Biden. They now have evidence that he sold influence. He, he was trading his, his position as vice president for personal gain. They have evidence now. And they've, now they've also provided cover for him with the Her report. And they could always pull that out for themselves. There you go. You're, and say, you're, well, he's just a senile old grandpa. He can't testify in an impeachment trial. Now, now you're seeing it. So let's, I'm going to walk through this. I'm going to show you what happened today. King Abdullah is, is in the White House. And I believe this was today, or it could have been late yesterday afternoon. I'm not sure. I think it was this morning. Uh, so Joe Biden met with King Abdullah. I'll talk later about what the king said. Right. But what I want to show you is oh, what yeah. this is- what Biden did, what Biden said. I've got several videos. Um, in this first one, he tells the king, uh, look over there. Barack Obama's watching you. Here's the video. Let me start by welcoming His Majesty, the King of Jordan. He's been a good friend. Abdul, welcome back to the White House, man. Welcome back. And by the way, Barack's looking at you in the corner over there. I can't believe he actually said it out loud. That, that's what gets me. Well, did, did you notice? The puppet master was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what he was saying. Is is Barack Obama behind a a, a one way mirror, or I should say a two way mirror? Is he is he behind the mirror? Is he looking out? Is there a camera? Does does Joe Biden know that there's a camera, or is it just a portrait of Obama? What was he talking about? Or was Obama there? Was was Obama physically there, off on the sidelines? No, I don't think he was. You I think, don't think so. No, I think it was either a portrait. Or Joe Biden knows that somewhere on the other side of the wall <laughs> is Barack Obama. Either way, he but, identified the puppet man. Yes, but as we watch this video again, watch again how Joe Biden, who looks like this very, uh, you know, very sad grandpa, he doesn't, he turns, he doesn't know where the king is at. He's, he's got his hand out. To shake the hand of the king, but the king is way over here, and Joe Biden's hands over here. Right. Watch this again. Watch. Pay attention, please. Let me start by welcoming His Majesty, the King of Jordan. He's been a good friend. Abdul, welcome back to the White House, man. Welcome back. And by the way, Barack's looking at you in the corner over there. So strange. It it was weird. So. But he's our leader in World War Three. Um, the next one, same same um, event, King Abdullah. Uh, you see the New York Post, confused Biden looks lost as he wanders behind the podium, stares at the floor as Jordan King Abdullah speaks. So watch Joe Biden. He doesn't know where he's at. He wanders around. He stares at the floor. Um, it's Grandpa is loose. He got out of the house, 
and he's wandering down the street, somebody go get him. Isn't that what we're dealing with? You're, you're right. <laughs> and I'm not making fun of him. I feel very sorry for him. So, uh, somebody needs to intervene, Jill, or somebody needs to intervene here. But <laughs> it, well, it's coming. They're already intervening, Doc. It's, this is all being set up. Let's watch. Your Majesty, over to you. Mr. President, Mr. President, uh, thank you for your gracious hospitality accorded to me and uh, my delegation today. Unfortunately, one of the most devastating wars in recent history. What do you think the king was thinking? Dear Lord, this is the man running the most powerful nation on earth. He doesn't, he doesn't even know where he's at. It's sad. You know these leaders go back to their countries and talk privately. Right. And say, this is really bad. Joe Biden is gone. He's checked out. But they can't say anything publicly. But privately, they're worried. Um, now, in this next one, he makes the mistake of he identifies the Israeli military operation in Rafah uh, at the Egyptian border as uh, being a U.S. military operation. Now, was it a, uh, a mistake that he just confused who was running the show or, or was it a slip of the tongue? Is it a U.S. military operation? Well, by extension, it is no matter yes, what. But he said it today. Let's watch. The King and I also discussed the situation in Rafa. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafa, the major military operation in Rafa, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Our military operation in Rafa. And did you see the look on King Abdullah's face at that moment, right mm -hmm. at the end? Uh, our military operation. Mm -hmm. Just Hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yes, was it a gaffe? Was it a slip of the tongue? Either way, we provide the material support for Israel to blow up Rafa. Okay, so let's watch again. This time, keep your eyes on the king's facial expression as you listen to Biden's voice. The king and I also discussed the situation in Rafa. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafa. The major military operation in Rafa should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Yeah, he was just pondering. What am I dealing with here? Uh, I'm in the White House. Did the senile president just admit that the Pentagon is running the operation against the Palestinian people. I came here to try to get him to put pressure on Netanyahu, and maybe I need to put pressure on him. New York Post, defiant White House says Biden won't take cognitive test, despite the damning her report 
and worried voters. Yes. Uh, so the White House says President Biden will not take a cognitive test, even after that report that Rick mentioned, that was highlighting his poor memory and also voters expressing major concerns about his mental acuity. Uh, the president proves every day, this is coming from Kareem Jean-Pierre, uh, the president uh, proves every day in how he operates and how he thinks by dealing with world leaders, by making difficult decisions on behalf of the American people, whether it's domestic or national security. And uh, the KJP mentioned this as a result of the uh, by uh, Biden's physician, Dr. Kevin O'Connor. This is how Kevin O'Connor sees it, Dr. O'Connor, and that's how I'm going to leave it, she said, adding that she has known the now 81-year-old Biden since 2009, and he's still sharp. What's interesting, the next question that uh, they asked her after this, Rick, was what's on the president's schedule uh, next <laughs> several days? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing uh, this afternoon, Wednesday or Thursday. Nothing? I, I thought uh, you know, he was at the top of his game, meeting world leaders and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, making big decisions and everything. And then she What's went, he doing? Then she went on to say, I, I can tell you that when uh, the White House staff is having meetings with the president, he is pressing us for information. Yeah, like, when's lunch? <laughs> yes. Where's my Jello? Where, where's the ice cream at? And so, and have you seen the full court press by the Democrats in uh, saying he's the sharpest? I mean, he's the sharpest knife in the drawer. He's the sharpest attack. Uh, you know, I, I really heard it from. I've heard it from. I've heard it from uh, the Talking Heads. I've heard it from Schumer. I've, everybody, they're all saying he's man, boy, the president's at the top of his game. Well, obviously, the American public doesn't believe it. Look at this report, New York Post. Whopping 86% of American voters feel Biden is too old to finish another term. 86%. Doc, he will not be the Democratic nominee. And this is from an ABC News poll. It's not, you know, uh, anything that's, you know, a conservative news outlet or anything like that. It says a staggering majority of voters feel President Biden is too old to serve out a second term in office. And uh, that's according to the latest uh, poll by ABC News, the latest data outlining, uh, outlining growing concerns about the commander-in-chief's advanced age. A whopping 86% of U.S. Del- adults felt that the 81-year-old Biden is too old for another term. And that's in a poll released uh, just this Sunday in the aftermath of a blistering special counsel report that noted the apparent memory issues for the president. And um, who was the uh, attorney general under uh, uh, under uh, Clinton, not Clinton, uh, Barack Obama? Who was the what? Who was the attorney general under Barack Obama? I can't recall his name now. Uh, I don't Fast know. And, I went after Fast and Furious and everything. Uh, I can't remember his name. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry, Rick. Mm-hmm. But I saw a clip of him questioning her even questioning Biden's mental acuity. It had nothing to do with the classified documents at all. Why would the special counsel even bring that up, even ask that question? So now they're condemning the special counsel for even asking the question about Biden's mental acuity. All right. So um, they've got they have a problem because they're saying that the special counsel, Mr. Her, that he added his personal comments into the report saying that Biden had a bad memory, couldn't remember when his son died, didn't didn't remember when his term as vice president started, didn't remember the last day. Right. Okay. 
So they're saying he had no business uh, uh, making comments. Uh, these are personal thoughts. Well, what they're saying then, if they're saying those things aren't true, uh, Mr. Biden did know the date of his son's death. He did know the date that his vice presidency began and ended. He did know those things. Well, then, if he did know those things, he knew that he was in possession of classified material. And that he's able to defend himself yes. for having it, right? So, the, the, the her report doesn't say that Joe Biden should not be prosecuted because he did not have possession of classified material. It said he had it and that he knew that he had it and he knew that it was in the garage. But there's no sense in going after But there's him about no it. sense in prosecuting him because he's too old and will not be able to answer questions. That's what the report says. So which one is it? He's too old or he knew exactly what he was doing. Which one is it? Her set up the stage. He set the stage for the removal of Joe Biden. And I, I don't, I, again, I do not believe Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. There is absolutely no way the Democrats will nominate that man. They have to remove him. He has served his purpose. He got rid of Trump. That was the purpose. They needed a stand in. A monkey would have won that election because it was rigged. It didn't matter. They could have nominated a chimp. The election was rigged. They needed a stand-in. Somebody who would allow Barack Obama to run the country for four years. Yes, that's right. And there was nobody willing to do it other than Joe Biden. Because Joe Biden lusted, absolutely lusted, to be president of the United States. He, you know, I've lost count how many times Joe Biden... Ran for president. It goes back to the nineteen eighties. These three that I can think of. It went back to the eighties. Remember, they, they disqualified him uh, in the first or second uh, time he attempted because he plagiarized. Yes, a bunch he was of stuff. lying. He had to drop out because he was lying. But no one ever talks about that anymore, do they? No, but he knew he was lying. But the point is, Obama knew Joe Biden would take the job with the rest- with the restrictions. You can't make any decisions. <laughs> I really believe that. They needed a stand-in. They needed a fill-in. Uh, Obama said one time he, he wished he could do a third term with a president wearing an earpiece that he could tell him what to say and do. I, I believe that's when Joe Biden pointed, told the king, look over there. Barack Obama's looking at you. That's because Joe Biden knew Obama was looking at him. One way or the other, he knew Obama's running the White House. So Biden will not be the Democratic nominee. They can't do this thing again like they did in 2020. They can't put Grandpa in the basement. Nobody's going to believe it this time. Nobody's going to believe it. With no rallies, no supporters, no debates. And then you... They're going to make him win re-election when 86% of the voters say he's too old? They can't do it, Doc. They've got to get rid of him. How? They can't let the Republicans impeach him. 
They can't. And that, that, that train is coming down the tracks. That's moving. They can't let the Republicans impeach him. So they're getting very close. The House is getting very close to an impeachment vote. The day I knew Biden was finished was a week or two ago when I read the first article that Joe Biden was arguing with Benjamin Netanyahu, called him some salty names. Yes. And um, apparently what mental faculties Biden still has operating, he's he's embarrassed, he's troubled by the number of children that have been killed in Palestine with Biden supplying the U.S. weapons and the money. And apparently he's arguing with Netanyahu, saying, you're killing too many kids. This looks horrible. It just looks horrible. And Netanyahu telling him, you don't tell me what to do. And so the two of them arguing. When I read those articles, I knew this is over for Biden. Yes. It's over. Every president who has argued with the Zionists has been removed. And then every president this past Thursday night when he had that train wreck of a press conference and he started talking about Israel, I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) he was criticizing Israel. There's there's too much, too much bloodshed going on over there. Too many dead babies. over. Let's go back in history. John F. Kennedy. Israel was a fairly new state. 1960s. Kennedy opposed Israel obtaining atomic bombs. They were stealing our technology from Los Alamos. Kennedy wanted to stop them from building nuclear weapons. There were uh, rumors at the time that Kennedy was going to send American commandos to Israel and seize the Demona nuclear plant. What happened to Kennedy? Well, he got his brains blown out. And then the, the, the patsy that got blamed for it, they killed him, too. They, he was killed by a, name, a guy named Jack Rubenstein, who worked for Meyer Lansky. The Israeli mob. The Israeli mob. So there goes Kennedy. Well, Johnson, Johnson was a Zionist patsy. He did whatever he was supposed to do. And had been for decades. Right. So, you know, Johnson authorized the, the attempted sinking of the USS Liberty. So... They let him go. Then comes in Nixon. But Nixon, crusty old Nixon, uh, Nixon would buck the, the, the Israelis. He stood up to them. I don't have the video to show you. I can show you a, a couple different videos. Um, but Nixon was not a pushover. He pushed back. What happened to Nixon. Watergate. Watergate. How do we know? Look, Nixon wasn't removed for ordering the break-in. He was removed for covering Covering up. up. How do we know that the people who carried out the break-in didn't set up Nixon? Well, I I believe it was set up. And then (laughs) what did Spiro Agnew say in a letter? when, When accusations came against Agnew, the vice president, that he was corrupt. He sent a letter to a, a an Arab businessman pleading for money for legal defense, and he said, the Jews are trying to remove me. 
and they removed and, him. And they removed him. On, on a decades-old real estate non, uh, piece of nonsense. That's right. And who'd they bring in for Agnew, his replacement? Gerald Ford. Right. 33rd degree Mason. And and then replaced the vice president with Rockefeller. Right. Without an election. All right. So after that, we go to Clinton. No? Let's see. Next no. Week. Oh, we had, uh, we had Carter. Yes. We had Carter. Carter said he uh, he didn't he he was denied a second term because of the Jews. He said it. Yes, he said it out loud. <laughs> yes, and he's replaced by Reagan. Uh, Reagan survived two terms, but they tried to shoot him. Somebody tried to shoot him. Somebody, I mean Hinckley, you know, shot him. Uh, they tried to take him out in the first couple months. Then comes in George Herbert Walker Bush. Papa Bush was not a patsy for the Zionists. He stood up to them also. You, I, I have to say that. You have to give him credit. His administration was not pro-Israel. What happened to Mr. Bush? He served one term. Well, President Bush remember what happened to Kennedy, too. Yes. So he served one term. In comes Clinton. He gets two terms. Then comes in George W. Bush. He did whatever they wanted. Yes. He did whatever they – you want war? I'll give you war, okay? So what I'm saying is this. Mr. Biden is arguing with Netanyahu. And I just read an article today that said that Netanyahu is ex- – I mean, excuse me. Mr. Biden is expected to take his fight with Netanyahu public very soon. That's it. It's it, Doc. It's over. It's over. The Zionists will remove Biden. His days are numbered. You will start hearing powerful, influential people in America saying uh, sympathy. It'll be out of sympathy. Yes. Joe Biden is a great American. He's a great American president. He has served his country but so well. He, he's like so many elderly people. Uh, dementia has overtaken him. And we ought to lovingly remove him with the 25th Amendment. The 25th Amendment allows a cabinet to begin, set in motion, the removal of a president if he's considered unfit to carry out his duties. And they tried to weaponize it under Donald Trump, yes. trying to use the 25th Amendment then, but, but this time it's going to be coached in happy oh, turns, soft terms. Oh, oh, wait a minute. What did Donald Trump say to Nancy Pelosi? What did, what did Donald Trump say? He said to Joe Biden in 2020, Joe, this isn't for me. This is for you. Oh, that's true. He did say that. I forgot about that. He said, this is for you. Trump knew they, they were going to use the 25th Amendment on Joe Biden. He said, Joe, Joe, this is for you. Nancy's doing this for you. I, I know we have that video somewhere, that I'm, quote, whatever it was. I'm looking for it right now. Um, so I think you're going to start hearing powerful, influential Democrats, news media officials, They'll bring out psychologists. Um, they'll, they'll bring out medical doctors, and they'll start 
sympathetically, carefully, compassionately talking about America has a constitutional crisis. Uh, the president, his, his mental health has declined. We have to deal with this, folks. Uh, we, we have to do this in a, in a proper way. He doesn't even know we're talking about him right now. <laughs> That's the sad part. That's what they're going to say. He doesn't even know we're discussing this. But we're going to have to go in and gently get Grandpa and lead him out of the White House. Uh, I have an article from New U.S. News and World Report. I'm looking for the video right now. So this is from January 12, 2021. Uh, this is Donald Trump. He was speaking in front of the border wall this particular day and said the 25th Amendment is zero risk to me, but will haunt Joe Biden. And what's the date of that? That's uh, January 12, 2021. So after the election. Yes. Donald Trump knew they were going to use the 25th Amendment to remove Joe Biden. Now, this is the, the part that I don't know how this is going to work out, Doc. They can't allow Kamala Harris to become the president. She has to be offered something. There has to be whoever they designate as the Democratic nominee has has got to become the vice president now. Before they remove Joe. The only other way that this could work is that President Kamala Harris would have to agree that she would be a caretaker, finish out the term, and not run for the nomination. That's a possibility. But can you imagine her as President of the United States for the rest of this year? That's what you're dealing with. But they may have to do that. Unless they can find some carrot to offer her. Ambassador to the moon. (laughs) It's a great moon. (laughs) I mean, what would they offer her that's higher than the vice presidency other than the presidency? What could they offer that she feels like she's left with her dignity? A Supreme Court seat? That's not going to happen. The only thing I could see is they could offer her the, the presidency of a university or something like that some far left university but where do you go after you've been vice president how many vice presidents very few vice presidents make it to the presidency that's right but very few resign to take a job right so that's the question but But there are more creative ways to remove vice presidents yes but doc let's talk let's remember what carrie lake said she was approached by the chairman of the Arizona Republican Party who said there is a group of powerful, wealthy people who will offer you whatever you want not to run. Maybe Kamala Harris will get her golden parachute. Name your price, Kamala. Name your price. We'll take care of it. We'll have offshore bank accounts that will be packed with money. Don't worry about it. You'll never work a day the rest of your life. I mean, if that happened to get Carrie Lake not to run, then certainly that can happen to get Kamala Harris to step aside. We'll see. But I know this. Joe Biden is on his way out. They're not going to allow a House vote to impeach him. The evidence came today. They've got the evidence today. He sold influence as vice president. You've got the Her Report. 
He knew that he had classified documents. Okay, so you're going to put Trump in prison for 450 years for classified documents. Because he's not senile. Because he's not senile. So the lesson here is if you're going to steal classified documents, be senile. That's, or don't get caught until you're senile. That's the precedent that they're establishing. If you're senile, we will not put you in prison. Well, so he's so senile, we can't put him in prison, but he can have nuclear launch codes. I'm still not But I don't think he has them. I don't think he does either. I think Medvedev knows that, too, and that's why he did that on that Telegram post. But if they gave the launch codes to Lloyd Austin, he's back in an ICU. That's right. He's back in the hospital, too. In the ICU. And and nobody's talking about that story at all, are they? No, but, Doc, he's in ICU. I know. This is really messed so up. So who has the launch codes right now? The assistant secretary It's of like they're under a peanut. <laughs> and the Russians are watching the peanut shells go around. I mean, it's under a peanut shell, and, and the Russians are watching the shuffling of the shells to see who's got the launch codes. Because we don't know. We know that Joe doesn't. All right. Um, I'm going to go through some headlines pretty fast here. Uh, number nine. U.S. Senate passes $95 billion Ukraine aid bill. This is aid to Ukraine and Israel. And Israel. They gutted um, the border. Yes. So nothing for the border. But for the borders of Ukraine and Israel, yes. There's your U.S. Senate at work. And 22 Republican senators joined the Democrats to support the bill. The Hill, Senate Republicans argue... Ukraine funding could lead to Trump impeachment. This is fascinating. I heard this last night. J.D. Vance, Republican senator from Ohio, said that there is a clause in this Senate bill that if the House passes it and Joe Biden signs it after Barack Obama gives him the okay, then President Trump is being set up to be impeached a third time. Yes, They've got a trap door in it. J.D. Vance argued Monday that the latest Senate proposal to to fund Ukraine and Israel could spark an impeachment of President Trump. Vance sent a memo to Republican senators claiming an impeachment time bomb is buried in the supplemental bill. He said the uh, bill represents an attempt by the foreign policy blob deep state to stop President Trump from pursuing his desired policy, and if he does so anyways, to provide grounds to impeach him and undermine his administration. Vance uh, contends that the foreign aid bill includes $1.6 billion for foreign military financing in Ukraine and 13.7 for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which are slated to expire September 30, 2025, Nine months into a second term for Trump. What he's saying is Trump has said he could end the war on his first day in the White House. Right, in one day, yes. And Vance is saying if he does, they're going to impeach him. Yes. Think about this. They're going to impeach the president for ending a war. Because what a country. <laughs> they have put it into the bill. This war is going to go on until September 25. We've decreed it. We're financing the war. To September 2025. And if you stop the war, we're going to impeach you. 
This is bizarre, Doug. It's yes. insane how far you know they they have already passed a bill that prohibits a future President Trump from removing the United States from NATO. Yes, I saw that story. So there's also another aspect of this bill. Uh, normally, when funds are given to another country, there is some scrutiny and oversight how those funds are spent. In this bill. You cannot question any of the money that is being sent to Israel in this bill. There's no oversight. There's no accountability. They could spend it on, you know, on Legos for all, all we know, but they there's no accountability. There's none. They they took it. They made it. They put it in writing in the bill. And who wrote the bill? Charles Schumer. And who endorsed it? Republicans. What a country. Yes. I want to get back to uh, King Abdullah. Uh, other than the, the clown show with uh, Grandpa Biden, uh, the king spoke with uh, intelligence. And he attacked Israel's 70 years of occupation of Palestine. Um, I, I'm going to play about three or four minutes of this video. Uh, so you see, I, I don't know if we had the uh, Jerusalem Post article up there. Um, we did. There we go. Okay. So I'm going to play three or four minutes of the video. This is what King Abdullah said in the White House today, in the presence of Grandpa Biden, who probably didn't even know who was talking after he introduced him. Unfortunately, one of the most devastating wars in recent history continues to unfold in Gaza as we speak. Nearly 100,000 people have been killed, injured, or are missing. The majority are women and children. We cannot afford an Israeli attack on Rafah. It is certain to produce another humanitarian catastrophe. The situation is already unbearable for over a million people who have been pushed into Rafah since the war started. We cannot stand by and let this continue. We need a lasting ceasefire now. This war must end. We must urgently and immediately work to ensure the sustainable delivery of sufficient aid to Gaza through all possible entry points and mechanisms. And I thank you, Mr. President, for your support on this. Restrictions on vital relief aid and medical items are leading to inhumane conditions. No other UN agency can do what UNRWA is doing in helping the people of Gaza through this humanitarian catastrophe. Its work in other areas of operation, especially in Jordan, where 2.3 million are registered, is also vital. It is imperative that UNRWA continues to receive the support it needs to carry out its mandate. The potential threat of Palestinian displacement beyond the borders of Gaza and the West Bank is something we view with extreme concern and cannot be allowed. At the same time, we must ignore, we must not ignore the situation in the West Bank and in the holy sites in Jerusalem. Nearly 400 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th, including almost 100 children and over 4,000 injured. Continued escalations by extremist settlers in the West Bank and Jerusalem's holy sites and the expansion of illegal settlements will unleash chaos on the entire region. The vast majority of Muslim worshippers 
are not being allowed to enter Al-Aqsa Mosque. Christian churches have also voiced concerns about increasing and unprecedented restrictions and threats. It is also important to stress that the separation of the West Bank and Gaza cannot be accepted. Seven decades of occupation, death and destruction have proven beyond any doubt that there can be no peace without a political horizon. Military and security solutions are not the answer. They can never bring peace. Civilians on both sides continue to pay for this protracted conflict with their lives. All attacks against innocent civilians, women and children, including those of October 7th, cannot be accepted by any Muslim, as I had previously stressed. We must make sure the horrors of the past few months since October 7th are never repeated nor accepted by any human being. We must together, along with Arab partners and the international community, step up efforts to reach a ceasefire in Gaza and immediately start working to create a political horizon that leads to a just and comprehensive peace on the basis of the two-state solution. An independent, sovereign, and viable Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. But living side by side with Israel in peace and security, this is the only solution that will guarantee peace and security for the Palestinians and the Israelis, as well as the entire region. Your leadership, my dear friend, Mr. President, is key to addressing this conflict, and Jordan is ready to work, as always, with you towards peace. Thank you. I've got to hand it to King Abdullah. He, he spoke clearly and intelligently regarding the issue, but he didn't tow the company line. No, he never does. I mean, he could have. He could have just said, we're with you all the way on this. After all, we, we provide military mm-hmm. hardware to Jordan. and so He walks that line as an Arab Muslim leader, king of an Arab country, and yet a strong U.S. ally. He walks it, but he, 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 he never holds back in expressing his thoughts in public right. like he does when he speaks to the United Nations. Uh, Doc, and, another, and he's the keeper of century-old promises that have been made to by guard his the Christian angel. churches. Yes, yes, he's the, he is the inheritor of that of that promise that a Muslim uh, ruler made to the Christians of Jerusalem that the Muslims would protect the churches, and that that key has been handed down, and he is the possessor of it. There literally is a key to the to the church. Yes, I remember you sharing that. Um, number 13, this is a Reuters uh, report. A Dutch court has ordered a halt to the export of F-35 jet parts to Israel. So the Netherlands was sending parts to Israel to keep their planes flying, and a court in the Netherlands ordered the government to block all exports of F-35 fighter jet parts because they were being used to violate international law during the war in Gaza, namely genocide. Then the Irish Times reporting, top EU official says the U.S. should freeze arms sales to Israel. This is Joseph Burrell, 
Yeah, that was shocking to me. The, the foreign policy chief of the EU. And he said, let's be logical. How many times have you heard the most prominent leaders and foreign ministers around the world saying too many people are being killed? He said, well, if you believe too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide less arms. That's an amazing conclusion, isn't it? So something's happening, Doc, that there's a shift and people are moving away from Israel. There's just too many dead babies. They can't deal with it. They just can't deal with the images that are being published on social media. And it's bothering them. Because it's one thing for a politician to go out in front of cameras and say, well, there's collateral damage. There's always a certain number of civilians who get killed in a war. That's war. They can't say that about this war because Netanyahu is deliberately trying to kill the children. It's so obvious. By the way, the the photograph that I showed you yesterday of the Palestinian teenage girl hanging on rebar in a building with her legs blown off, uh, Twitter X platform uh, took it down and locked my account. Yes. Well, they locked it. They locked my account until I took deleted it from my account. So it's too much truth for Twitter. You just can't show the world what the Zionists are doing. But it is bothering people, people that I never thought would question Israel. And the one I saw today really surprised me. Democrat U.S. Senator from Maryland, Chris Van Hollen. He actually talked about war crimes. I want to see. I think we've got two. Do we have one or two videos? One, One right? Yes. So we're going to play a, a clip from his speech. He accused Israel of war crimes. Let's watch. Yes. Last week, Secretary of State Blinken made his fifth trip to Israel, where this time he urged Prime Minister Netanyahu not to launch a major military operation against Rafah, a city in southern Gaza whose population has increased fivefold since the beginning of the war because Palestinian refugees fleeing from northern Gaza and other parts of Gaza were told by the Netanyahu government that Rafah was a safe place for them to go. Within hours of meeting with Secretary Blinken, Prime Minister Netanyahu rebuffed that request and announced publicly that he had decided to launch just such an operation against Rafah. And yesterday, as if to rub it in, Prime Minister Netanyahu appeared on ABC Sunday television here in the United States to say that despite the requests from the United States, he had decided that Israel will launch a military operation against the city of Rafah. Madam President, this is part of a pattern a pattern where Prime Minister Netanyahu thanks President Biden in the United States for our substantial military assistance, but then mostly rejects our request to take measures to protect civilians and to facilitate desperately needed humanitarian assistance to people in need. President Biden has called the bombings in Gaza, quote, indiscriminate. 
And the United States has repeatedly called upon the Netanyahu government to take steps to end the huge number of civilian deaths from bombing, artillery, and other weaponry. The death toll now stands at over 200, excuse me, stands at over 28,000 people, over two-thirds of them women and children. And what does Prime Minister Netanyahu say? He says Israel is already doing all it can. President Biden recently called Israel's actions in Gaza, quote, over the top, unquote. Prime Minister Netanyahu said he didn't know what President Biden was talking about. Every major international aid organization that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to virtually everyone, says that the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is the worst they've seen in the world ever in their decades of experience, as over 400,000 people are on the verge of starvation, and the entire population of over 200 million is at crisis levels of food insecurity. Meanwhile, Israeli authorities in Gaza, Kogat, say there's, quote, there's no humanitarian crisis in Gaza, unquote. The Biden administration has repeatedly urged the Netanyahu government to allow for more humanitarian assistance into Gaza, only to be mostly ignored. The overriding message to the United States from the Netanyahu coalition is this. Thanks for giving us all the weapons. Thanks for your taxpayers' support. But don't lecture us about civilian casualties or the need to better facilitate the delivery of humanitarian assistance. Madam President, I want that to sink in. Kids in Gaza are now dying from the deliberate withholding of food. In addition to the horror of that news, one other thing is true. That is a war crime. It is a textbook war crime. And that makes those who orchestrate it war criminals. So now the question is, what will the United States do? What will we do? What will President Biden do? President Biden must take action in response to what is happening. First and foremost. Doc, Senator Van Hollen is one of the most liberal Democrat senators in the U.S. Senate. He's now in agreement with Rick Wiles on True News. Look how far things have changed. I'm telling you. Things that I say about Zionism, you now have far left Democrat senators saying the same thing. Saying that Israel's committing war crimes and that Netanyahu is a war criminal. Yes. Well, Senator, if you voted for U.S. to send more weapons and money to Israel, you are complicit in war crimes. And if we are partnering with Israel on delivering these weapons to their intended targets, guess what? We're in that same boat. That's right. We're war criminals, too. Doc, not only is uh, Joe Biden on his way out, so is Netanyahu. The Gaza operation has been 
It's a, it's a, it's, it's the Palestinian Holocaust. It's a Palestinian pogrom. It's the purging of an ethnic group. It's the second Nakba. It is. It's the great, a Holocaust. The greater Nakba. It really. is a Holocaust. We, you and I, we have been witnessing for the past five months a Holocaust in Palestine. But you can't say that word, Holocaust. Well, I just said it, Holocaust. Because Israel owns that. It's a Palestinian pogrom. They're killing children. They're wiping out a race of people. Simply because they want the land. They want the people gone. They want the land. I'll show you one quickly. Uh, uh, Number 16, France slaps travel bans on extremist Israeli settlers. Radical land thieves, Israelis, well, European Jews who went to Palestine to steal land, uh, will not be, some of them will not be able to travel into France. See, there's a change. Netanyahu's on his way out. Gaza is a public relations nightmare for Zionism. Zionism will never recover from what Netanyahu did in Gaza. Never recover. I will remember it the rest of my life. There are a lot of people who will remember it for the rest of their lives. They will never again look upon Zionism and the state of Israel the way they did before October. Because they took their mask off. They showed the world what they are. They're willing to slaughter children. They're willing to hang legless Palestinian girls on rebar. They're willing to shoot eight-year-old children in the street. They're willing to do it. And they're not going to apologize. And they demand more money, more weapons to kill more. It's a disaster. The Zionists have got to remove Netanyahu. Just as the Democrats have got to remove Biden. I expect to see both of them gone in the coming months. And protests have started back up again in Israel. Yes. This week. The Zionists want him gone. Um, He's too much. He's too much to swallow. It's just, he's over the top. Over the top and killing kids. Hey, we're going to take a break. Coming up, we've got a station ID, and then we have morning manna. We're going to wrap up our study of Matthew chapter 4. Don't go away. You're listening to WWCR International Shortwave Radio. You can find True News on frequency 12.160 from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern and on frequency 4.840 from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern. Connect with us on Rumble, Facebook, X, and Getter. Are you concerned about this economic storm and how your IRA and 401k will fare during these turbulent times? Top experts are predicting now is the time to be protecting your assets with physical gold and silver. Find out why Genesis Gold Group is the number one recommended company by your favorite preppers and homestead channels. Receive Genesis Gold Group's free definitive gold guide today or give them a call at 800-200-GOLD. Let's begin. Father, we... Praise you for this wonderful, beautiful day. You are our God, our maker. You are everything, and we praise you and worship you. 
Father, we invite the Holy Spirit to lead and direct this morning man of Bible study. Teach us your word, illuminate our hearts and minds, that we would see Jesus more brightly, more clearly than we've ever seen him, and understand his kingdom in a deeper way. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, Doc, today, verses uh, 18 through 25. All right. So, first of all, welcome, everyone, to uh, Morning Manna. Thank you for joining us here. We already have 15 countries that have checked in with us. And so we appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us live here on Morning Manna. And so uh, we're reading today from Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18 and finishing out the chapter today. So uh, if you got your Bibles, let's open up here this morning. I'm reading from the King James today. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And Jesus went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with the devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. God bless the reading of his word today. Amen. Let's begin with verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Break it down segment by segment, and Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee serves as the backdrop for this encounter. The Sea of Galilee is known by other names, the Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Chinnereth. It's not a sea as we think of an ocean. It's more akin to one of America's Great Lakes. It, it has an irregular oval shape, 14 miles in length, six to nine miles in width. Uh, its greatest depth, depth is 165 feet, 600 miles below sea level. So the surroundings of the Sea of Galilee are known for their beauty. And, you know, when Doc, you and I, we, we didn't get close to the sea, but we could see the sea. Yes, and it is a, it is a beautiful area. Um, because the Sea of Galilee is now in Israeli-occupied territory of Palestine. Yes. So when we took our trips to Jordan, uh, we couldn't 
travel into the area of Galilee because it's under uh, Israeli military occupation. But uh, there were popu populated cities that once thrived on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias, Bethsaida, Capernaum. And the sea is uh, primarily fed by the Jordan River. It has other streams and fountains. Um, obviously, uh, during the rainy season, it uh, swells in, in size. Uh, but despite uh, being um, stormy due to the high hills surrounding it, the waters of the Sea of Galilee are uh, described as sweet and clear, abundant with fish. So we have the next segment of the sentence. Saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. Jesus deliberately walked by the Sea of Galilee with the intention of calling disciples. It wasn't an accident. He had chosen these men before the foundation of the world. It wasn't as though Jesus was just hiking around the lake and saw two guys and said, hey, you want to follow me? No, he, had, he made these two men. He created them in their mother's womb. He knew their names before the universe was created. Yes. So Jesus took the walk along the Sea of Galilee that he ordained that he would walk before he made the sea. It was part of his divine plan. So he encounters two brothers, Simon, who is Peter, and Andrew. They were engaged in their occupation as fishermen. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. The call to discipleship occurred amidst Simon and Andrew's daily work routine, an ordinary day, doing mundane tasks. Jesus will visit people in their ordinary circumstances and transform their lives with a simple call. It, it emphasizes Jesus's accessibility to people from all walks of life, his willingness to meet them where they are. He didn't send a letter to Simon and Andrew saying, this is an invitation to join my team. Meet me at such and such a place. Jesus went to them. Yes. <clears throat> he, will, he will come to you. He will, he will go to the people who need to hear from him. Um, his visitation to Simon and Andrew 
during their work day it it, it reflects their humble uh, social status their ordinary lives uh, showing Jesus's preference for selecting people from just everyday average backgrounds right they lacked formal training and religious education but Jesus chose them to be his close companions, his ambassadors of the kingdom. If you, if you relied on religious people, they would have told Jesus, you have to go to the seminary to call your disciples. Yeah. But Jesus went to fishing boats. Why? Because <laughs> he didn't want to waste a lot of time undoing religious training. And boy, that's the truth, isn't it? Yes. Imagine had he called two men from a, uh, a rabbi school who had spent years being taught the Talmud. You know how difficult it would have been to undo all that junk out of their minds? Uh, Simon Peter and as we see uh, the sons of Zebedee which we're going to study in a moment were from Bethsaida and most likely politically they they hoped to see a revival of the nation state of Israel if you were to talk to them while they were fishing about politics, yeah, they would have, those guys would have said, yeah, someday we're going to get Israel back. The, the term casting their nets, it actually means they were washing their nets. Yes. They were not engaged in the act of fishing. They were, they were finished with fishing. They were washing their nets. Here's how I know. In Luke chapter 5, Verses 1 through 3. It says, Now while the multitude pressed on him and heard the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. Right. He saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were worse washing their nets. Right. He entered into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him, to put out a little from the land. This is another scene where he's having an encounter with Simon Peter. Simon's still fishing at this point. So his choice of fishermen as disciples highlights several aspects of Jesus's ministry. Number one, the freedom of his grace in selecting humble individuals. Number two, the demonstration of his power through weak instruments. Number three, the wisdom of his plan that would ensure that the glory of the work would belong to God rather than men. Ezekiel 47 
contains a vision of rivers of living water flowing from the temple. It begins as a small trickle that grows into a mighty river. Prophetically, Jesus is the source of the river of living water. But verse 10 makes a reference to fishermen. Doc, I never saw this before, and I've read Ezekiel 47 many times. Verse 6 says, verse 6, Ezekiel 47, verse 6 says, He said to me, Son of man, have you seen? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters flow out towards the eastern region and will go down into the uh, Arabah. Then they will go to the, toward the sea and flow into the sea, which will be, will be made to flow out, and the waters will be healed. Verse 9, it will happen that every living creature which swarms in every place where the rivers come will live. Then there will be a very great multitude of fish, for these waters have come there, and the waters of the sea will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river comes. And then you see in verse 10, it will happen that fishermen will stand by it. There will be a place for the spreading nets. Their fish will be after their kind, as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But wow. the miry places and the marshes will not be healed. They will be given up to they will be given up to salt by the river on its banks, on this side and on that side. Will grow every tree for food whose leaf won't wither, neither will it. Will its fruit fail? It will produce new fruit every month because it waters, because its waters issue out of the sanctuary. Its fruit will be for food and its leaf for healing. Wow. This, this is a prophecy about New Jerusalem. This is a prophecy about the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. And Ezekiel saw this river flowing out of the temple. And he saw fishermen. And he saw many fish. And the fishermen were spreading their nets. This is the gospel. The net is the gospel. Amen. So, and when Jesus is making the reference about rivers of living water flowing from us, uh, <laughs> this is a reference he's making too. Wow. Yes. The rivers of living water flow from him, not from us. Yes. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Wow. That's a good not out of, Not out of their bellies, but out of his yeah. belly. He is the source of the healing water. So um, there are other references. There's one in Jeremiah chapter 16 uh, about uh, fishermen, but it's, uh, it, it's actually the opposite. The fishermen are are catching the wicked it's it's not it's it has a reverse meaning uh one thing to notice here is that we now see simon introduced as peter yet we have not read where jesus has named him peter 
But Simon, I mean, Matthew, in telling the story, he just goes ahead and says, hey, I'll just tell you right now. This fisherman named Simon, later in the story, he becomes Peter. That's that's why it's there. Uh, Peter, which means rock. Okay, So Matthew gives us, you know, a heads up. Pay attention, this guy, this fisherman named Simon. Later in the in the narrative, Jesus is going to rename him. You're going to call him Peter, Petra. Um, I want to go down to uh, verse 19. And he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Jesus said to them, he spoke to them. He didn't wiggle his finger. He spoke to them. He didn't make a meme. He didn't send an email. He didn't send a text. He spoke to them. <laughs> words came out of his mouth. Words that entered their ears. Words that their brains processed. And they heard the words, follow me. Jesus' prompt call. Uh, evokes immediate obedience from Peter and Andrew. He tells them to leave their employment and become his disciples. That, that's a bold, bold statement to somebody. Can you imagine somebody walking up to you today at, on your job and says, quit what you're doing and come with me? That was bold. Yes. But even more bold was Peter and Andrew doing it. Yes. I think that's more bold than Jesus saying it. Jesus promised Peter and Andrew that they would become fishers of men. He said, I'm going to keep you in the same line of work, but I'm going to transform your work. You're going to remain fishermen, but you're not going to catch fish in the sea. You're going to catch men and women in the sea of life. And your net will not be these ropes that you're holding. Your net will be the gospel, yes. my gospel of the kingdom. But you, you're going to know what to do with it because you're fishermen. You're going to understand that you are to cast this net, the gospel, out into the sea, the ocean of life, and draw in the souls that are brought into the net. You're going to understand it your entire life. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so when he says, follow me, it doesn't necessarily mean a physical relocation or frequent travel. It's understood to be an invitation to become his pupils. See, they could have stayed right there by the lake, and they still would be following Jesus if they became his disciples. Follow me didn't mean, hey, I'm, I'm going to hike 10 miles north. Follow me was come my way, live like me, learn of me, 
know my ways. It, it, it's about discipleship, following the teacher, learning from him. So when Jesus calls a person and says, follow me, that does not mean that that person has to quit his or her job and move to Egypt. It means you're going to devote the rest of your life being discipled by Jesus Christ, learning his ways. Yes. Understanding his kingdom. So the use of the term fisherman, obviously it's symbolic significance. It portrays Jesus as the one who transforms ordinary individuals into influential instruments for spreading the gospel. The sea symbolizes the world. The souls are fish. The net is the gospel. He says, and I will make you fishers of men. The emphasis I want you to see here is I will make you. He could have said anything. I will make you bakers of bread. I will make you farmers of wheat. I could, The emphasis is on, I will make you. Jesus can make you anything you submit to his will to do. Amen. Jesus promises to equip and empower the disciples for their task of becoming fishers of men. Success depends in, entirely on Jesus' promise and his empowerment. Only Jesus can equip and empower us for the task of becoming fishers of men. The success of Peter and Andrew depended entirely on relying on Jesus Christ's promise and enablement. It wasn't their abilities. They knew how to catch real fish. They didn't know how to catch the souls of men and women. But Jesus couldn't make them fishers men until they made the choice to follow him. That's right. Then the next verse, it says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. So that was the right. word that was given. That was the instruction. Follow me. And in following me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's right. So prior preparation through discipleship underscores the importance of spiritual formation for effective ministry. Jesus will not simply drop into you all that you need for the position he has called you to occupy. Yes. But when he calls you into ministry, that does not necessarily mean full-time ministry as a pastor, an evangelist, Bible teacher. He can call you into ministry as a physician, a nurse, a truck driver. It's, he says, I'm going to use your employment. And I'm going to catch the souls of men and women through your employment. But you have to submit to him and let him build in you the character and the knowledge 
and the skills necessary for him to operate through you in that position. Right. It's not like that some that today that they feel a call or they uh, think that they have a, a gift and suddenly start, you know, operating as if they're, they have everything that they, they need, that they're fully qualified. There's a process that's involved. There's a following that's involved. They, following means taking step by step after somebody. Okay. Uh, you're just yes. not walking equally with them, but you're following them. You're going after them. Uh, there's a lot of people today that just, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm called to be this, that, or the other thing. And immediately start operating as if they have all knowledge and no accountability with it at all. But Jesus saying, you, you know, to become a fisher of men, you have to follow. Following is really the tough part, isn't it, Rick? It is. You know, in my own life, I, I knew that there was a call in my life, but I felt incredibly uh, ill-equipped, unprepared. I didn't have, I didn't have a secular education. I didn't have a religious education. I didn't have ordination through a denomination. And and I I just I struggled for years, uh, thinking I I'm, I don't I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I, I have to go to seminary. I have to go to Bible college. I've got to, I got to join a denomination. Uh, I got to get a piece of paper stamped by some religious board. And, and then after many years, the Lord just pushed me into the lake and said, Rick, swim. Yeah. And that happened when I was working at TBM. He, he literally pushed me into the water and said, you need to swim. And I did. And I've been swimming now for 26 years. I, I lack a college degree, but I have studied spiritual and world affairs for tens of thousands of hours over these 26 years. Yes. Jesus will not simply drop into you all that you need for the position he has called you to occupy. The Holy Spirit educated me. He chose my learning path, but I had to follow him. He didn't just drop into me knowledge about the kingdom of God, um, world affairs, politics, governments, the new world. He didn't just drop it into me. I had to follow him and be taught, be educated. Right. But I didn't have to go to a college or a seminary to receive training from the Lord. It's Jesus who equips you. It's Jesus who educates you. There's, there's nothing wrong with college and seminary. He may choose that path for you, but then he may not. The important thing is that you understand that he is the source of what you need to be equipped. Whatever role Jesus calls you to perform, he will equip you. He says to you, I will make you. Yes. I will make you. Jesus is saying, if you'll trust me, if you'll obey me, if you'll follow me, I will make you into something. You know, I look back, I mean, over, you know, I, 
you know, I came from a, 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 a you know, a humble rural Appalachia background. And somehow <laughs> over these decades, you know, the Lord, the Lord transformed my life and downloaded into me skills that I didn't know I had. And I didn't have them. He gave them to me. Giftings. But I had to follow him. It was a, it was a conscious decision on my part every day for 26 years to follow him. So dependence on God, just as, as a fisherman depend on the sea for their catch, you and I must rely on God for success in our endeavors. Amen. Uh, there are others in the Bible who came from humble occupations to serve God. Saul was a farmer. David was a shepherd. God often chooses men and women from humble positions for lofty positions in his church. Verse 20. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Straightway means immediately. Peter and Andrew immediately left their nets. They didn't walk away from their fishing gear with the expectation of returning in a day or two to retrieve it. The nets were company equipment. They were professional fishermen. They owned a thriving fishing business that had boats, nets, workers, customers. The business had a stream of income. All they had to do to have money was fish. Yes. They knew how to catch fish and they knew how to sell fish. When Peter and Andrew immediately, immediately left their nets, they also immediately walked away from their fishing business, which they had invested years in building. They didn't procrastinate when Jesus beckoned them to follow him. They did not hesitate before acting. They didn't say, well, Jesus, this is interesting, an interesting proposal. We're going to go out to sea tomorrow and think about this. We'll try to get back to you by next Thursday. We'll send you an email. We'll call you. Don't call us. We'll yeah. call you. Because we know about a young man, a rich young man that Jesus called and he turned down the invitation because he would not give up his wealth. That young man was called to be a disciple, called to be an apostle. He said no. This act represents a deeper commitment beyond a mere change of occupation. It reflected their willingness to prioritize Jesus above everything else. It symbolized Peter and Andrew's readiness to forsake all worldly attachments for the sake of following Jesus. Their willingness to forsake their means of living to follow Jesus shows us their sincerity, their commitment to discipleship. Yeah, Doc, what did you... I was just going to say, you were mentioning the, the, the rich man that approached Jesus to follow him. And uh, it's interesting, in Mark chapter 10, 
in that interchange where Jesus has the conversation with the rich man, Peter, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, it's really hard for rich people to come into the kingdom. And the mm-hmm. disciples were astonished at that. They, they were like shocked at that. Who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then Peter has this to say. Peter began to say unto him, Lord, we have left all and have followed you. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say to you, there is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, but that he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brethren, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands and persecutions, and the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. So it's interesting when you brought up that about the uh, rich man there. Peter had that interchange. Hey, you know, we we left everything to follow you. We, yes. we left it all behind. Yes. But Jesus told Peter, you, you will be blessed in this life. Yes. Doc, I have one physical, natural son, Jeremy. How many spiritual sons do I have? I, I got a lot. You got a lot. Yes. I got a lot. And and some of them are in this Bible class right now. Right. And And we have a father-son relationship. He's given me a multitude of sons. Yes. Verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Going on from there, there, meaning where he called Peter and Andrew. So he stops by the sea. There's a boat, Peter and Andrew. He calls them. From there, he goes on, comes to another boat. James and John with their father, Zebedee. The brothers were mending their nets after a long day of fishing, getting their gear ready for the next day. Mending nets symbolizes the disciples' readiness and preparation for the work ahead in their new calling as followers of Jesus. These men did not procrastinate and wait until the next morning to do what they should have done at the end of the previous day. Yes. Many of you, if you've been in business, particularly sales, you know this phrase, prior planning prevents poor performance. What must you do today to increase your productivity tomorrow? What can you do tonight to make your morning better? Prior planning prevents poor performance. The two brothers, James and John, were mending their nets. They had fished all day. The the, the fish had, had stretched the nets. They had to mend them. They didn't they didn't say, you know, James didn't say to John, hey, let's do this in the morning. 
the guys are down here to town. They're playing soccer to, today. Let's go down and join the soccer team. We'll fix these nets in the morning. And nor, no, nor did they leave it to their father to do either. And they didn't say, let dad do it. Dad will fix them. Old dad, he'll stay here. But they didn't say, let's put it off to the morning. Because they didn't want to come in the morning and have be compelled to fix nets from the previous day. Because that was going to slow them down. They're going to have to get out to sea. What is it that you can do today that makes your tomorrow more productive? Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Finish up today, today's work. Finish today's work today. A lot of people, and we see this with employees, they, they, they push into tomorrow what they could do today. We see James and John as industrious brothers. They're not on the side of the boat dangling their feet in the water. They're working, and they're working alongside their father, Zebedee. So we see Papa Zebedee was in the boat with his boys. It's a family business. Right. And Pops expects his sons to carry on the family fishing business as he grew older and unable to physically endure the labor of fishing in the sea every day for many hours. Right. And uh, Mark uh, 120 says that there were also servants in the boat with them, too. Yes. So they had employees. They had a, it was a company. It was a family. I mean, it was a, a you know, a good size operation. It was Zebedee and Sons Fishing Incorporated, LLC. It was a family business. Um, you know, Zebedee, you know, he's, he's getting older. These, these brothers, you know, they're, they're sons. Um, they're obviously Jesus's age. They're around probably close to 30 years old. That puts Zebedee in his fifties or sixties, maybe even 70. And fishing is, not an, and fishing is not an easy life either. So you got to know. No. When I think of uh, Father Zebedee, I'm thinking like Popeye. I mean, you know, he's rough and, and tubble. I mean, he's yes. he's probably got arms that built like uh, iron bars and everything. And, That's right. And he's thinking, you know, my sons are they're such good sons. They do this work great. I, someday I'll be able to stay home with Mama. They'll run the fishing business. I'll be able to stay home and enjoy my life. And along comes Jesus. Jesus, yes. You know, perhaps uh, Papa Zeb had heard his sons talking about Jesus, but paid no attention to the young preacher's growing popularity around the Sea of Galilee. Verse 21, he called them. Verse 22, they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Despite strong family bonds, James and John were instantly willing to leave their father alone on the boat for the rest of his life. Walking away from a career or business is difficult, but many people do it to follow Jesus. Walking away from close family members and friends is extremely 
is an extremely emotional experience and few people are willing to do it and endure the pain of separation. Yes. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, 34 to 39, don't think that I came to send peace on earth. I didn't come to send peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man at odds against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. He who doesn't take his cross and follow me isn't worthy of me. He who seeks his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a tough, tough demand by Jesus. Yes. Verse 22, they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Zebedee and sons did not own a flat bottom bass boat with an outboard motor. The Bible says it was a ship. There are big differences between a boat and a ship. First, the size. Ships are bigger than boats. You can transport a boat on a ship, but you cannot transport a ship on a boat. That's the common rule. Boats navigate creeks, rivers, lakes. Ships navigate seas. Boats are limited in seating capacity. Ships carry passengers and crew members. Boats are limited in the weight of cargo they can carry. Ships are built to transport heavy cargo. A boat's design and construction is simple. A ship's design and construction is complicated. A boat's propulsion in ancient times was either one or two sets of oars, or small sail, ships had either large sails or many oars that required a lot of men to row. What's the bottom line? Zebedee and sons owned a ship. At least one. At least one. They may have had a fleet and they had employees. It was a thriving business. The brothers not only left behind a prosperous fishing business with valuable assets such as at least one ship, but they also left behind their beloved father, Zebedee. What was Zebedee's reaction? Anger? Weeping? Resentment? What did Zebedee tell his wife when he went home that day? How long did Zebedee wait on his sons to change their minds and return home? Did he say to his wife, honey, just give them a week or two. They're going to change their mind. They're going to realize this is crazy. We don't wow. know the answers. We don't know the answers because it doesn't matter. You're right. What mattered was that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, beckoned these young men to follow them, and they responded with a yes. Yes, the Lord comforted Zebedee and his wife. But... The Lord's purpose was more important than Zebedee's emotions. Oh, my. 
a lot of churches aren't willing to go there. Yes. That's tough. It's a tough call. Very tough. Are you willing to put aside your mother and father, your sons and daughters, your brothers and sisters, your closest friends to follow Jesus? Verse 23. Hmm. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manners of sickness and all manners of disease among the people. And Jesus went about all Galilee. He was mobile, always moving, never stationary. He traveled. He didn't make people come to him. He went to the people. He started every morning looking for people to bless. Just think about what he is mine in the morning when the sun came up. I got to get moving. I got to get dressed, eat my breakfast and get out here and start teaching, preaching and healing. It's the model for all ministers of the gospel. Teach, preach, heal. Teaching in synagogues. He visited various synagogues wherever he taught. Uh, where he, excuse me, he, he visited various synagogues where he taught the kingdom of God. Jews had gathered every Sabbath to hear about the word of God. Suddenly the word was standing in the synagogue. Praise God. The word taught them truth about the law and the prophets, not what rabbis wrote centuries earlier. In the new covenant age, the church replaced the synagogue as the center of religious instruction. Churches are for worship and religious instruction. Churches are where Christians should be transformed into disciples. Preaching is the second activity of Jesus. Preaching is not teaching. Preaching is proclamation. Yes. A, pe a preacher proclaims truth <coughs> and invites the hearers to accept biblical truth. Teaching is the explanation of biblical truth. Not all great preachers are good teachers, and not all great teachers are good preachers. And the gifts and rare, talents are different. Right. And Go ahead, Doc. It's a rare combination where you find the two of them together. That's right. The gifts and talents are different. Evangelists are preachers. I think pastors are primarily teachers. Yes. However, many great preaching evangelists serve as pastors because the modern church doesn't know what to do with evangelists. <laughs> you got it. And many great Bible teachers serve as pastors because the modern church doesn't know what to do with teachers. Yes. Oh, you, if you're a teacher, you should be at a, a, a Bible college or a seminary. You shouldn't be working at the church. Jesus, however, embodied both gifts, teaching and preaching. He is the source of the gift for all preachers and teachers. As 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 Doc said, most likely one is a primary function and the other is secondary. Yeah. You may excel in preaching but struggle in teaching or vice versa. And it, that second calling, if you will, might be an adaptive calling, which means it might not be something that you originally 
were meant to do, but you have to adapt because of the situation and circumstance. Yes, yes. I think Paul is a great example of that. He was a, a just a tremendous teacher, but he also pastored at uh, different periods of time in his ministry, too, because of the need. We know that he was in Antioch. We know that he was in Ephesus. But his primary role, well, he was an apostle. I mean, a, a teller. Yes. I mean, uh, so... Uh, but he adapted to whatever need is. And that's, and that's another aspect of the calling to ministry that a lot of people don't seem to uh, think about is that sometimes they fall into the trap. Well, that's outside my call. Uh, so I won't, I won't do that. I tell you what, God has to call you to wash toilets for a while sometimes in order to get to a place where you teach and preach and everything else. It's just we don't we don't have a lot of people willing to, and I guess it goes back to that follow me, uh, you know, to uh, imitate Christ and to do the things that are required to take the step by step that's necessary to uh, fulfill that calling. That's right. So where did he preach? I think he preached in the synagogues. No, excuse me. Let's change that. Where did he preach? I don't think he preached in the synagogues. I believe the synagogues were for instruction. Yes. The people who attended weekly Sabbath services in the synagogues were the Jews who did not need to be convinced that there is a God. The heathens outside the synagogues needed to hear about God. So I believe Jesus' preaching was in the streets and the marketplaces of Galilee. And what did Jesus preach? Well, let's first eliminate what he did not preach. He did not preach Christian Zionism. He did not preach the gospel of prosperity. He did not preach the gospel of positive thinking. He did not preach the gospel of social justice. He did not preach Mary Baker Eddy's gospel of Christian science. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Whose kingdom? The kingdom of God. Yes. His message was repentance, faith, in the imminent arrival of God's kingdom among humanity. It says any healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. There are two classifications of illness, sickness and disease. What's the difference? The flu is a sickness. Cancer is a disease. An illness is something that makes you sick. It could be caused by germs or viruses. Illnesses span a, a precise period of time. It has a beginning and an end. A common cold will eventually go away. During the time you have the cold, you're sick, coughing, sneezing, running nose, headache, fever. A disease is a malady. A malady is a lingering, deep-seated disorder in the physical body that affects the body's organs. Right heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease. Jesus' healing power was not limited to a, a few ailments. He didn't say, I'm sorry, I, I can't heal cancer. I'm only doing headaches today. <laughs> I'll try to do cancer next week. The classification of the illness didn't matter to Jesus. All were the same to him. Right. It's as easy for... It's as easy for Jesus to remove a tumor as it is for him to remove a toothache. Right. All, uh, sickness, all sickness and disease bow 
to his holy name when spoken in faith. So Jesus traversed throughout Galilee, teaching the word, preaching the kingdom, healing the people. That meant everything from straightening crooked feet to healing blind eyes and deaf ears. And all of these healings demonstrated his compassion, his love for humans. Sickness and disease had entered the world after the fall of Adam and Eve. Yes. There was no sickness or death in the Garden of Eden prior to their first sin. In, in God's eyes, sickness is abnormal. It was never meant to be part of life. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, came to earth to undo the damage caused by the first Adam. Amen. You are not called to be sick. It is not God's will for you to be sick. It is dis-ease. It is abnormal. God's original plan was for men and women to have whole bodies with no sickness, no death. Verse 24. I got to wrap this up. The report about him went out into all Syria. They brought to him all who were sick, afflicted with various diseases and torments, possessed with demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. In today's modern digital social media parlance, we would say that news about Jesus went viral. His fame extended from Galilee into the whole province of Syria, beyond Palestine, wherever he traveled, to teach, preach, and heal, the people of those communities brought to him all who were sick. Not some, all who were sick. Right. Afflicted with an assortment of diseases and torments, possessed with demons, epileptics, paralytics. Um, the King James says they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments. Those who were possessed with devils, those which were lunatic, those who had palsy. Divers means every kind. Torment means suffering pain. Lunatic means mentally ill. Palsy means muscular diseases such as MS, Parkinson's disease. In every city that Jesus visited, the people brought to him all the people who were sick, who had broken bones, rotten teeth, the flu, infections with high fevers, contagious diseases, people with heart disease, cancer, kidney disease, crippled people, paralyzed people, those with epilepsy, mentally ill people, people who were possessed with devils. And what was his response? He healed them. all of them. He was moved with compassion. Matthew 14, verse 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. If you never see the love and compassion in Jesus' eyes for humans, you will never truly know Jesus. People can spend decades going to church and talking about God, but if they never look upon lost souls with compassion... They will never know the God whom they profess to follow. Right. Damascus, Syria, at the northern tip, 
of the Ring of Ten Cities. The distance between Amman, Jordan, and Damascus, Syria is 110 miles. Right. So think of this, this territory, this circumference, 110 miles from the bottom to the top. And Jesus and his disciples walked from city to city, all 10 cities, teaching, preaching, healing. And he healed all the diseases. He was always moving. He went about, never stationary, always on the go, taking the word of God, bringing healing and wholeness and relief and freedom and liberty to people who were in bondage to Satan, in bondage to sickness that Satan had imposed on them. Everywhere he went, there's liberty. In Galilee, the people who were in darkness saw the light. Light, yes. All right, Doc. Yes. I'm going to get it on. i got to wrap it up. Okay. Well, just a reminder, folks, that the first two letters of the gospel spell go. And that's what Jesus did all the time. When he was preaching the gospel, he was always on the go. And so so should we be. So praise God. Yep. Hey, uh, so I, you know, over the years, over the years, I've had people who have uh, chastised me and said, Rick, why, why do you raise money to do these things? Why aren't you just satisfied with what? Um, why can't you just sit there and give us the news? Why do you want to do these things? Because God said, go. That's right. I can't sit there and be like you. I got to go. I got to be like Jesus. If you just sit there, you'll rot. Amen. Get up and move. Move your legs. Go like Jesus. He will go with you. Amen. Think about it. When you go, he's with you. Praise That's God. That's why we go. That's why. So, hey, everybody, thanks for joining us today. We had 18 countries checking in today, nearly 400 people joining us for this live Bible study. And if you're listening later in the day, we invite you to join us weekday mornings at 8 a.m. on Faith and Values for Morning Manna. And so that's every weekday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time, no matter where you are in the world, it's 8 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, but we have lots and lots of people that listen to us later in the day uh, through various platforms on uh, Shortwave, on Rumble Getter, other outlets as well. We thank you for taking time out of your day to stay with us and to explore the Word of God. There's the bad news of the world, but there's the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what we try to do here on Morning Manna. Uh, we have to cut our time short here now. Uh, God bless you, and we'll see you on the Wednesday edition of Morning Manna. God bless you.